If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today we're going to chat with John and McLean again. And John is a regular guest on Horse Chats. We love having John on. He's always got lots of answers for us, always talking about horse-friendly terms. We started off with John just talking about handling a foal. And then we kept going and started talking about different things, you know, loading, the yearling, and teaching them how to go through different scenarios and different problems that the horse might face through its life, right up to riding the horse for the first time, riding them in the round yard, taking them out, doing a little bit of show jumping with them, you know, carrying on doing lots of things through the horse's life. We've also talked about confidence, confident riders, confidence horses, but we haven't actually, well, we have probably have a little bit because we talk about lots of things, but today we're going to talk about potential problems for cross-country training with horse-friendly solutions. So John always gives us horse-friendly solutions anyway, but these are potential problems. And most of these problems are fences or jumps or, you know, whatever we like to call them within the cross-country course. And um, I'd just like to talk to John about how we can fix them but make them horse-friendly. Okay, but before we do that, we're going to talk about the vision of International Horse College. And if you've got the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at the website, internationalhorsecollege.com. Have a look at the wide variety of courses, and if you are interested in studying with International Horse College, which is a registered training organisation, courses through a wide variety of equine fields, talk to the friendly staff at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, Jonna, how are you? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me loud and clear, Glenn? I can hear you loud and clear. And, Jonna, I'm really happy to be talking to you today about ten, our potential problems for our cross-country training. You know, I know that you've done a lot of cross-country and, you know, a few three-day events. And, and um, just tell us a little bit about, about what you've done cross-country because I know you've done eventing. I know that amongst all the other things that you've done, tell us a little bit about what got you started even with cross-country training and what you've done, maybe one or two highlights of your cross-country career or your eventing career. Okay. Um, Glennis, I was completely, can I say, captured by the fact that my brother Andrew and my Noella were competing at a pretty high level when I started um, looking into doing a serious equestrian career and having groomed for him and, and Manu at various events, it sort of got me into the groove of, you know, understanding what's required and what's important and the deficiencies of the rider, the deficiencies of, of, the, of, of, of our training. And, and, and as, you, as everybody knows, you know, Andrew and Manuela, are, um, they eat, drink and breathe horse training. That, that's all they think about. And so, you know, there were many nights around the table, late nights around the table talking about, you know, what we should do with this horse because it does that or we're going to this competition, etc. So it completely got me hooked because up until then, I would say that I probably more had a racing a, a racing background than an eventing background. So okay. the two were really 
quite mergeable in that I could use some of the facets of the stuff that I'd learned by working in England when I was in uh, I was working at Bedford House with Luca Kamani, who's um, anybody that knows anything about racing would know about Luca um, in Newmarket, and um, he actually got me completely absorbed into understanding the physiology of uh, getting your horse fit enough. Mm-hmm. And through that, and Dr. David Grant, uh, Dr. David Evans, who is from from um, from Australia, um, I was working with those um, sorts of people help me understand what, what you need to be able to do to be able to measure the fact that your horse is fit enough. And that was a great background. And then in conjunction with the behavioural stuff that I learned with Andrew and you, uh, it put me in a really good position to be able to um, get into... The thing I loved about eventing was that after having a bit of a, a very short jump racing career, it meant that when I was jumping a fence, there were no horses in front of me. There were no horses behind me. It was actually just against the clock. So yes. it was lovely. I, mm. I really enjoyed that and I found it really easy. And then after a little while, of course, I ended up uh, being a little bit noticed. And so then I got invited to um, be on squads. And then I did the uh, squad stuff for quite a number of years. I don't remember how many years, but quite a few. And um, all the big names helped me be able to achieve the stuff that I wanted to do, which was um, four-star qualifications on um, a couple of different horses and something like, I can't remember, I, don't, I haven't got a tally in my head, but I would say eight or nine FEI-qualified horses. So it meant that I've seen a lot of tracks I'd travelled to. The only place I hadn't travelled to was WA, which I would love to have done, but I did Adelaide a few times, which was always my bogey track. And um, Melbourne, I love Melbourne and Sydney. Melbourne and Sydney was where I really did well when it was slippery and dodgy and, and, and Sydney was a great track. So, I mean, I was sponsored by so many good horses that I ended up realising that my breaking and training career and my understanding of the behavioural information that I had going through my head, which was you know, primarily from, from my brother and my sister-in-law, that put me in really good stead to understand it's actually all about trying to understand what the horse can see, what it can feel, what it can do, what it knows, and the context in which you apply it. And if you take those things and you apply them really consistently, you end up, you always end up with a consistent cross-country horse. So, you know, and, and my first really, not my first good horse, my third or my fourth good horse, I actually sold overseas to Andrew Hoy, and he was a great horse. And I know the, the moment that I sold that horse, I was never, ever really going to be on the spectrum for for riding for Australia because I'd now ditched my best horse. But for me, it actually wasn't about riding for my country. It was actually, I enjoyed the training. And then I loved being going, going out there and not being part of the known, known group of riders that would do damage and then just come up and just do damage. I loved that. I loved being an unknown rider. I, I really I reveled in that. <laughs> and so... It meant that the smarter I could be and the more I could train, I spent so much time training. I was just training the whole time, riding in the winter, riding in the snow, galloping my horses up hills, interval training, which is where I got all that from Andrew and and also Luca in in England and understanding the importance of heart rate and lactic acid productions and stuff like that. So, I mean... I don't know. It all just came to me on a platter and I just went with the flow and to the point where I was completely addicted. And I realised that I wasn't addicted to competition at all. The fanfare was really not... 
something that I got much enjoyment out of. It was nice and all the rest of it and, and all the accolades that you get with that and publication in your name in news and magazines, etc. But for me, it was actually finding out how well I could train and I found out in a very short period of time that it, with a horse that I could systematically train, I would be able to be competitive at an FBI level in, in a very short period of time. So that enabled me to be able to maybe, can I say, try and judge the deficiencies of the horse, the attributes of the horse, and also my own attributes and my deficiencies, because everything in eventing is all limited by your deficiency. And your deficiency is dressage, well then, you'll be chasing from behind and you'll have to catch up cross-country. But if you can start up in front and then you can actually do a really good double clear cross-country, then you are in a very good position as long as your horse has got the energy and the fuel enough to be able to go quietly around very economically clear um, show jumping time-wise and um, rail-wise. Yeah. You know what, Jonna? The consistent cross-country horse that you're training, I think that's come right through all your training that, you know, you correctly train your horse. And I know that you've said before that, you know, well-trained horse is a safe horse. Keeping the horse consistent. So, you know, I'm yeah. talk, thinking about the first jump here, which we'll talk about, which is a ditch, that you know that there's a ditch there. That's okay. I've trained my horse. It's going to go over it. Not, oh, I wonder if you'll go over here. And, and making it inconsistent, the fact that you've trained several FEI horses shows that you've had consistent. It's not just been a bit of a fluke, you know, it's been consistent. So this sort of training that we're talking about today is consistent, correct training, systematically putting the horse through the correct steps, making it horse-friendly. And really, I think if people are really looking and looking after the welfare of their horse, this is the type of training they should be looking at. That's exactly right, Glennis. Today in the day and age uh, of where we are, we really need to be looking at very, very carefully our actions upon all the horses to ensure that by the time we get to competition, all we're doing is showing our wares. We're not trying to train because at that point, you have already trained the result. And if it proves at the competition your training has not been broad enough, then so be it. It doesn't matter. There's no reason or rhyme to be able to, or, or, or cause for us to get angry with the horse because the horse is simply a product of our training. This mm. is it, and people don't get that. Or I think people are getting it now, but, you know, sometimes it was the horse's fault. In my world, it's never the horse's fault. You have to look in the mirror. Yep, yep. John, are we going to run through some jumps today? But what I'd like you to do, because... We have a wide variety of listeners on our show, okay? Sometimes they might be trail riders, they might be western riders, they might be dressage riders or show jumpers or people that don't compete or people that do barrel racing. But even though we're talking about cross-country training, I know because of, you know, sort of chatted with you so many times before that you're going to give us, um, even though we've branded it cross-country, but some of the solutions that you're going to give are going to apply for quite a lot of other varieties. So even if you don't ride cross-country and you're not eventing, I would urge you to listen to this because, um, you know, just the general knowledge. But what I would like you to do is to just briefly explain the jump or explain what we're talking about just in a layman's type language because sometimes people won't know 
what we're talking about. And I know that we're saying ditch, which is fairly obvious, but if you could just talk about the first one, which is a ditch, before we actually talk about what the potential problem is and what we can do to fix the potential problem. Yep. So, Gladys, the great news is that for the people that have um, only started their eventing career, it is called a ditch. But for us that have a little bit more age and a little bit more time behind them, it used to be called a coffin. And it's a fairly uh, negative term, but they were called coffins. And sometimes, um, and this is no word for lie, there would be a mannequin in the bottom of it. Like yes. There, there would be, yes. it would actually be a coffin. Cup. Yes. Yes. I psychologically, remember. I think for the riders that don't have the impetus to uh, get their horses that may be a little bit looky. That is going to be a problematic obstacle. So to boil it down into um, really simple terms, uh, my advice to everybody would be turn your horse in all terrain walking vehicle. The best thing you can do for a young horse, he's not jumped across country jump yet, he hasn't even jumped across rail yet, is take him on heaps of bush rides and do lots of all terrain walking and trotting. Mm-hmm. So up hills and down dale and here, there and everywhere, let him have a look down there, let him deviate off his line because that's an opportunity for him to be able to create resistance. And that is probably something that um, we talked about many episodes ago with trailer loading and, and leading our, our weanlings, if everybody remembers that. So allowing our horse to deviate off our line just creates a problem. So we're not allowing them to do that. We're making them stay on their line. But the, really the issue is here, the more often we can create a great, comfortable outcome where the horse requires very little pressure to do the obstacle, and the obstacle is relatively new, but the concept is familiar, then we are in a really positive uh, training state. So in other words, we are now shaping. And shaping is a way of being able to say, we have a basic response here, and now we're going to make it a little bit more obedient and now we're going to start to influence what it looks like, what it sounds like, and maybe what it feels like if it's water, for example. So from a basic point of view, start off with something simple and then don't be in a hurry to make it complex and start to explore the deviations of context because if you cause the context to change too much, then you will probably have a refusal cross-country because the horse has never seen the picture before. So the way that I think of it, it's a little bit like going into a library and reading a book. You're going to go to the department of the library that you feel most familiar. So for us, we might look at uh, we might look at non-fiction and if we, we feel quite comfortable in non-fiction, but as soon as we go to fiction, we uh, I don't understand that question. So it's all about keeping it in the context and keeping it, um, relevant to the horse's perspective. And I have to qualify that because from a retraining perspective, the most difficult horses and the most disappointing ones that I've ever had have always been horses where somebody else has had a little bit of a, 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 bit of a, 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 a training issue, if you can call it that. At high level, I'm talking about FEI retraining, um, so it's at an international level. And they always cause the most difficult uh, training issues because you don't know what everybody else has done and you don't really know what the horse's negative experiences are. Whereas what I'm saying is if he's never had a negative experience, 
is much more likely to take the leap of faith for you than a horse that hasn't. Okay. Okay. So thinking that riding a ditch or, you know, what used to be called a coffin should pretty much be riding it the same way as what you do if you were, had a young horse just out on the trail rides. I suppose we see the ditches naturally, don't we? You know, if we're out on a trail ride, we'll have a bit of a, you know, rise and a fall and, you know, maybe a bit of a dry creek bank, we'll see that ditch and it's just natural progression. Is that right? That's right, exactly. So we're riding a horse across the ditch, for example, and we're riding our horse um, down the driveway and we're walking across the ditch. That's fine, but then when it starts raining and there's water across the ditch, that is an extra factor. So I only ever like to change one variable at a time. So it means that if I can walk my horse across the ditch, and he's much more likely to go across the ditch, if I cross that ditch at the same point I've done when it was dry, rather than ride down to a different area that he hasn't seen before and now there's water in it. So these two variables only ever change one variable. Okay. Now, that's the ditches. We're going on now to banks, okay? Now, I'm thinking, well, I know what a bank is, but if someone doesn't know what a bank is, how would you call it? What would you say if you were going to describe a bank? You know, if you're talking about someone wants to build a bank that they're not sure what to do, what would you say? Okay, so the most important thing about a bank is the horse needs the power to be able to elevate his body plus the rider's weight mm-hmm. and the conditions that are prevailing, so if it's a little bit more power, to be able to have the impulsion to be able to jump up a vertical height and land on an elevated platform. So he needs to be able to have power. The most crucial part here is having enough power and having the rider facilitate the jump well enough that he can get his hind legs up the back, otherwise he will stifle himself in the back, which we've all seen. Yep. So what we need to be able to do is have the takeoff point approximately, well, it's only a little bank, you know, probably the height of the fence away is the ideal takeoff point, but we also need to be able to release the reins and have the rider's position in such a way that it facilitates the hind or the latter part of the jump process to get up the fence, which is his hind quarter, um, up to the top of the bank. And then also preserve that impulsion because now we've either got, if we're an FEI level, we'll probably the related fence, or if we're at a lower level, we have to jump off the bank anyway. So we need to prepare ourselves for another obstacle. Okay. So it's important that we preserve the impulsion and, and obviously maintain our line, etc. But we also need to facilitate by having a, a nice upright pocket as if you were jumping. Let's say, for example, we're jumping a 95-centimetre vertical. Then that should be jumped in the same tempo, the same rhythm as jumping a 95-centimetre vertical show jump. Okay. And then if the rider doesn't touch the horse's, horse's mouth and the takeoff point is good and he doesn't stand off too far, he doesn't get too close, and the rider doesn't interfere with um, the reins too much, um, and the horse is able then to jump up the bank and land with his hindquarter engaged onto the bank for the relevant obstacle which is coming up next, which a drop or whatever it is. All right. Now, if I talk about narrow fences, I don't mean a fence that's not a spread, do I? I mean a narrow fence is like between the flags, you know, like you've only got a set place to jump. Is that right? If we say narrow between the flags? Yeah, that's 
Yeah, and everybody that is familiar with the podcast so far has mm-hmm. really understood I rabbit on about uh, the importance of line a lot. Yes. And, and this is a line fence. That's all it is. It's a line fence. Mm-hmm. And they're not usually that big. You can go them without a horse. They're not that difficult. So they're, but they're testing because they're in line. And so you've recovered it from one fence at FBI level. You've recovered from one fence. And then on a completely obscure angle, probably going towards something not very nice, is a skinny. Mm-hmm. So... What is actually testing? How well can you control your horse's line after you recover from a certain fence going over another obstacle towards a, uh, towards a darkness or towards water, maybe? Okay. So it's actually really about the test of line, yeah. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. So say we are going towards water. If we're going to be jumping into water, what are some of the problems that we could have with jumping into water? The first question that we should always ask is if we're jumping towards water, like we're nowhere near the water, but there's a water background, and it could be the ocean, it could be a river, or it could be a water jump. Okay. And all three are applicable to a lot of the courses that I've, I've jumped around Australia. So it doesn't really matter what it is, but if the background is shimmering and moving, it is completely different to a normal background, and that's the issue for the horse. So it means that if we're jumping, for example, towards a water jump as the next jump afterwards, but the background is definitely water, then I have to ask myself, how much more leg aid should I be using here because I know my horse is hesitant into water, which tells you that because the context has now changed towards water, I'm going to need to use more leg or more application of the leg aid and hopefully get a, a desirable reaction from the horse um, to jump over this new obstacle with the background being water. And and that's the issue with hanging logs is often hanging logs are on the edge of water. So you come towards the hanging logs, so you've got two factors now. We've got a hanging log plus we've got a water background and the water is visible on the next log. So the horse will want to back off if he's not what we call bold into water or automatic into water, yeah. Okay. Now, a trachana. Tell us what a trachana is. We sort of talked about them, you know, um, I don't know if we talked about them when we talked about ditches, but just tell us a little bit about what a trachana jump is, what a trachana cross-country jump is. A trachana fence is a really classic fence, a classic old-school fence, and if you know how to jump, then they're really, really lovely to jump. Um, but they're a real rider fence, a bit like a ditch. They're a real rider fence. Um, there's a bit of psychology involved here in understanding how much have I trained, how much has my horse seen, 
how much homework that I've done, and how recent was the training. So there's a couple of factors at play here, but let's just say it's actually a log suspended over a ditch. Now, it could be a could parallel to the ditch, but it could also be diagonal to the ditch. So when we have a ditch fence, as we talked about prior, uh, previously, then we have a log over it, could also be hanging right in the middle in the air suspended, or it could be hanging over the latter part of the ditch. It doesn't really matter, but let's just let's argument sake. The classic trick in it tends to be a diagonal log across a ditch. So it goes from the left-hand front corner to the right-hand back corner. That means that the takeoff point for this fence, ideally, is going to be somewhere about in the middle of the fence because the takeoff point and the highest are at a 45-degree angle approximately, which is around about the... Uh, the shape of a horse's jump when he's travelling across country speed to negotiate the fence. The issue really is here is the riders, their eyes glued down to the ditch, their eyes drop, their shoulders go forward, then they get in front of the movement, and of course the leg aid doesn't work anymore because now the leg aid has moved and the horse hesitates. So what we're talking about then, John, is we've got a, a ditch and then, you know, you talk about introducing something as well, you know, just introducing one thing at a time. So you've got the ditch that the horse is already going on. We've already talked about going out on trail rides yep. and, um, you know, making sure that we've got yep. the correct line to the ditch. But now you're introducing another thing, which is the log over the ditch. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Which is logical training, horse-friendly solutions. Yep. Exactly, and that is a really good reminder for me, Glennis, you mentioning that, because if you haven't trained hanging logs, hanging logs, by definition, mm -hmm. are logs that don't have a brown line and they are just suspended in the air. Yep. If you haven't trained hanging logs before you jump a trachina, you will have a problem. Yep, yep, yep. Especially on a, on a yep. show jumping horse that is really quite suspicious. So show jumping horses are notoriously sensitive horses that... Uh, notice any contextual change. And, 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 you know, I mean, I love those sorts of horses because they're sharp and mm -hmm. they have good technique. Yeah. So that's why I like them. So for me, spooky horses or horses that overjump are the horses that I want because they're the horses that are going to get me through the show jumping and also look after their bodies cross-country. So that's why I've always liked them. Yeah. Anyway, um, I've diverged. But all I'm saying is that if we jump hanging logs and train hanging logs, we might train log on the ground. And then we'll jack it up a little bit, and then we'll pop up that and get that really fluent, and then we'll move it about and put it in different contexts. And then we'll train ditches as a separate entity, mm -hmm. and we'll jump the ditch, yep. and we'll get that really fluent, and then we'll put the two together. And you don't have a problem when you do that. Okay. But you just say, oh, I'm going to just roar in at this trachina mm -hmm. and have a go at it. You're going to be relying on speed to do it. So I don't think that's safe, and I don't think it's ethical, and I don't think it's that smart either. Yeah, yeah. Another one that people may not understand because it's a bit of a different name, a palisade. Tell us about a palisade. What's unique about a palisade jump in a cross-country course? A palisade really has a, a really only been gone, you know, come into being in the last 15 years or so. They're basically the wall at the back of the kitchen. They usually have a bit of brush at the top of it. The takeoff point is you know, obviously in front of the ditch, and the highest point is in the back of the ditch with a wall, so it'd be a timber wall, or it could, it could be a rock wall, but uh, it could be any sort of wall, with some sort of brush stuff at the top of it. 
So it means that with the palisade, is that you've now got a wall and you've got a ditch. And so if the ditch is really wide and it's full of water and you've got a wall there, then if you haven't trained that aspect of the palisade, which is just the wall and the brush, mm-hmm. and you've trained that width of ditch, you will also have a problem. And they're, they're really common occurrences. Palisades, they can cause some issues with probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing here, maybe 50% of the class will, will have a problem with a ditch or, or water or palisades because they all have the same effect. They have a perspective which it has some depth and it also requires the horse to be able to perceive that and then determine its takeoff point. It's like a trachina. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. the same as a trachina. But at a higher level, you don't see the massive, well, when I say you don't see the massive trachina, you still, you still see them about, but we tend to use um, palisades more often than we use big trachinas now. I mm-hmm. don't know why, but we do. <laughs> I'm just thinking, you know, cross-country, there's so much variety when you compare it to show jumping. It's like, well, bring out the coloured rails and bring out this and, you know, sometimes we might have something a little bit different, like a hick said, bank or something. But, um, yeah, I think cross-country, you can just let your imagination go wild, can't you? Oh, well, you can, Glenis. And I I live in a a really technological world and, and, or I try to, and if I had my time again, I would fly a drone all the way to the uh, to the venue, fly my drone around, film what's going to be in front of me, and then I've got two weeks to train for it. And that's how I would do it. I'm mm. not trying to let the cat out of the bag, but all I'm saying is, what is my horse up for? What is he going to see? Because they don't tell you. No. You, you turn up to an event, you're nominated for an event, mm. and you don't know what they're going to throw at you, and you can't go there and have a look because that's unfair. Mm, so mm. what we're really saying here is we know that you are a meter 30 class, so therefore we can do any variation of obstacles. There are so many contexts cross-country, it does really test your brain power sometimes, especially, you know how we were just talking about palisades? Yes. I can remember one of the first times that we ever saw skinny palisades. So we're talking about two palisades on a curve. <laughs> so, in other yeah. words, a wall with brush behind it, a scallop brush, downhill to a maximum ditch on a curve. Yep. My horse had never seen that. Yep. My horse had never ever seen that, and so you don't know. Mm. This is this is the this is the issue. So, I I've always been pushing for the fact, and I've always said that anything that's completely out of the ordinary that would could jeopardise. A reasonable population of the riders should be published before we enter. And the reason I'm saying this is, come on, give us a little bit of a heads up so that we have some expectation. Yes, there will be three drops, there will be four waters, there will be two palisades, and there'll be a, you know, palm tree on an island, whatever. But give us a give us a heads up. Whereas we didn't ever get that, and and, and riders to this day don't. So for me, where I'm going, this conversation isn't. I would always stick to my known tracks. I was familiar with Sydney, familiar with Adelaide, familiar with Melbourne, familiar with all my regionals. So I sort of stuck with it because I knew the course builders and I knew that what they would do was they were basically just going to do the same thing in a different area with a slightly different aspect and it was all, all good. But what brings you undone is when you see something and you walk the course and you say, my goodness, 
I don't know whether my horse will go around this track. You probably shouldn't start if you do that. And I can't tell you how many times that I've said that and I've started anyway. But that's not my recommendation to everybody. You know, shopping's a fairly known article. Dressage is a fairly known article. But cross-country, unless you've got a really established FEI horse, two-star and below, then you don't always know. You know, the hardest horses to ride uh, uh, from two-star below because there are still some variables out there that could cause an issue, whether it be... Um, can I say, uh, an apex, I'll, I'll give everybody a scenario, an apex over a ditch on the curving line. Yeah. And then <laughs> I'll add more. Apex, yeah. over, apex over a ditch on a curving line via water. So A is a apex over a ditch, B is the water, and C is the apex on a curving line over a ditch going the other way. That's difficult. That is tough. That is really tough stuff. So when we're riding combinations and related fences then, you're going to still keep telling us about some of the fences that you've done, but what can the rider do that makes it so they're really thinking about the combination or the related fence? How, you know, how are they going to ride it a bit different regardless of, I mean, because we've only done individual fences here, but if they're going to ride a, a combination or a related fence, how are they going to do that? What's different? What can you tell us as riders to be aware of here? Super question. A really super question. It is all about how long your show jumping stride is on your horse. If, mm. if you don't know the length of your uh, show jumping stride on your horse, then you shooting in the dark. And we see lots of riders and their back is to the back of the fence and they walk along with, um, you know, their hidden boots on, walking to the next fence, counting the number of strides. Well, it's all very well, they're measuring something. But what I'm talking about is that if you know that your horse, because I'm only riding a 15 two-hand stunted thoroughbred here, if you don't understand what his or her stride length is, then you are going to have trouble calculating how many strides, whether you need to add or subtract, and whether you should add or subtract. And they're big questions too. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that particular horse that you're riding is going to accommodate their fence and what their reactions are. It is notoriously difficult riding cross The amount of information going through your mind on this horse, especially if you have multiple rides, you might have three rides. So if you've got three rides, you can think, oh, I wonder how champion will go through here. Oh, yeah, he's a big, long striding horse. I'll need to sit up here because I don't want him to get into because those strides are short. And my next ride is going to be um, on my little mare, and she's only half his size, and she only takes, you know, an 11-foot stride, so I'm going to be found wanting here. Can I add? No, I can't add. How can I add it? Can I go off my line, curve it slightly, because I've got five strides available. So if I've got five strides available, approximately, I can add a stride. So if I can add a stride, that might put me in a better spot. Or should I just take the fastest line, because that's the closest point? Big questions, Glennis, and I don't know whether there's actually any true answer to this because it depends on the terrain, the horse's reaction, its well-being, and the rider's focus on understanding how long their horse's stride is going to be at that point in the competition. Mm-hmm. So they're big questions. I don't know the answer. So what you're saying is you're going to get long-striding horses, short-striding horses, but then the long-striding horses might shorten the times of the short-striding horses, you know. Yeah, big variety. 
I can understand. You've really got to know your horse inside out though, haven't you? And you've got to have done the training first before you walk your course and done the training, but not just gone out and jumped a few jumps and jumped the training, but really dived down deep into it. You know, how many strides can my horse put in there? Are they coming up a bit short? Are they having to stretch? So there's a bit more than just popping over a few fences. Yeah, and that's the advantage of Glenys of doing squad training because squad training taught me that I do understand my horse's stride length and his capabilities. It doesn't matter if he gets a wrong in the show jump around. Mm-hmm. But I sure as hate he's don't want him to get a wrong cross country because it'll tip me off. Yes. So I need to understand that if I replicate a metre 30 double parallels on a curve, on a left-hand curve, that he can actually maintain his line so accurately and I can keep his canter tempo to the point where I can preserve my impulsion to A and B and end up being able to facilitate his um, effort to be able to get up both fences, then I understand something. And so this is how I have to ride my cross country. It's basically just show jumping well, but unfortunately they don't fall down. Mm -hmm. So show jumping is all about the rehearsal, you know, the dressage, the show jumping is all about the cross-country rehearsals because cross-country is all about context. Yes, yes, okay. What about now, and we talked before about going up banks and we did talk about it being a combination, but we haven't talked yet about drop fences or going down banks. Now, something else that does come up a bit, so I'd like you to talk about going down banks, but in particular for the rider, you know, what is the rider position as they go down a bank or a drop fence? You're dishing out some pretty big questions, so it's quite good because I've got two big questions in a row. But the, the, the answer or the difficulty here is there is no real answer to this because the position of the rider going down a drop fence, you're basically dropping off a cliff. And if you are dropping off a cliff into water or you're dropping into a sunken road, then what we need to be able to do is make sure that the horse perceives the edge of the obstacle clearly so as the takeoff can be really smooth and that the horse can drop down into the into the lower part of the sunken road of the water without hindrance from the rider's hands. And then we're able to say, okay, what should the rider's position be? And the rider's position is going to be largely determined by their ability to have core strength to jump the obstacle. So, in other words, if you are slightly weak in the upper body, or let's say, for example, and I know a lot of people like this, their upper bodies are big, strong, but their lower lower parts of their bodies from their waist down are actually a little bit wiry, then they're going to struggle with that fence because that will mean that when they land and the, the deacceleration of that will cause their upper body to fold and so their recovery will be slower. Mm-hmm. It also means that those riders, if they lent back, would be a problem. However, for the riders whose horses are coming into the fence and their upper body uh, upper body is, say, perpendicular to the ground or perpendicular to the fence, which is straight up and down, and they're able to land and then maintain, this is the difficulty with drop fences, maintain a nice, clear, even contact all the way from the takeoff point to the landing and maintain your body stability because at FBI, at FBI level, the expense is going to be related. It'll be within five strides. There'll be something happening, so you need to recover fast. So anybody there's a bit slow on 
recovering all the horse stumbles, trips or misreads the fence and overjumps it is going to have trouble with it. So I think it all comes down to a couple of things, three things. The first one is the right, uh, the horse's, horse's ability to be able to read the fence, which is a training issue. So how many drop fences have you done? How well does she drop down them? In other words, does she drop down them really calmly? Does she overjump them? Or does she still then jump? And then also the rider's capability of being able to keep their upper body controlled enough and strong enough that they can maintain a nice light in contact throughout the process because there's a related fence in five strides. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is really all about the, the terrain and, and the position of the obstacles. So if everything is all in line, then those two things will be fine. But terrain, traction, in other words, whether it's really wet and slippery, will change things a little bit, and also the context of the fence. So it's a big question. And so I'm, not, I'm actually not saying you should, you should be in front of the vertical, you should be on the vertical. I'm saying, depending on your ability to jump a drop fence, I'll tell you where you should ride. I suppose that's where, you know, you've got your own personal students and you can see them and you see them ongoing, you see them coming up through their training and you give them that individual instruction yep. on how yep. to work. Jonna, what happens if someone's overseas and they think, I really want to get some lessons from Jonna, I really would like to get some feedback here on my position, my problem here. If they contacted you and organised a video or something, are you open to that, you know, to talk to people from overseas and do live streaming or video or something just to give them personal attention on the particular problem they have? No problems at all, Glennis. And, and look, like in contact my, I'm trying to win um, Facebook site or my email, which is johnmcclain at gmail.com, J-O-N-N-A-M-C-L-E-A-N. Um, at gmail.com. Um, it's all lowercase mm-hmm. uh, on my Facebook page, which is trying to win. And yeah. they can do that. And, and I, I do, I'm, well, in, in this day and age, I'm getting quite, I'm having to become quite good at mm-hmm. the uh, whole process of uh, media stuff. Technology, that's yes. That's where we're going to head. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely yeah. no problems at all. Uh, look, my, my job is to try and help as many people as I possibly can. And and my interest is, is the people that are really focused and really care about their training and really care about their horses' welfare, which is what your um, what your um, angle is as well, is that, you know, they're, they're the people that we want to help. So we want to make horses' lives better yeah. and people's lives safer. That's what we want to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And deepen that understanding. I've got a couple of other questions, Jonna, but just in case you didn't get those details, we'll say them again at the end of the chat. And um They'll be on horsechats.com. You just go and search for Jonna. Jonna, another question, and this is not necessarily a jump. Well, it is because if there was a jump, say you're riding out and you're going cross country and all of a sudden you get to, you know, a group of trees or something where there's shade in the trees and the jump itself is just as you go into the dark, you know, so you're out riding in the light and then all of a sudden you're riding into dark and over a fence. What potential problems have we got there and how can we teach our horse to go confidently into the dark and over a jump? Okay, Glennis, that is a question that, can I say, hounded me for a very long time because I did lots of jumping in from light into dark, mm-hmm. not on purpose, 
specifically, but sometimes the competition, especially in summer when the fight is so intense. And if you go into, you know, a lot of English trees, um, the birches and oaks and stuff like that, and jumping around these parklands, it can go from light to dark um, quite a lot. And we all know how long it takes horses being, being diaphragmatic to adjust to the light. And so that is playing in your head because you're saying, well, he doesn't have two minutes. Mm. <laughs> I'm camping towards this fence. So what do you do? The answer really is trying to have your line organised from light to dark as straight as you possibly can without having to do too many other messages so he can really start to see what's going on and not be going too fast, riding a bit cautiously here and having a canter, a show-jumping canter, that will enable him that if he needs to put in a short chip shot, he can get himself out of trouble. Whereas if you're doing a nice, big, loping canter, uh, gallop stride and you're looking at 15, 16 full canter stride, then he's going to be less able to be able to get his hind quarter under him to get himself out of trouble. So going right to dark, I'm always cautious. And you've pointed out one of the fences here. The probably scare me the most is going from light to dark because we know the horse's deficiencies. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes knowledge can be a little bit uh, unnerving because you know what the horse can and can't do and now here's the problem presented and you've got to jump in front of you. So I was always, I'll just go straight back to my show jumping canter. As soon as I saw something like a show jump canter, I can catch up more time later. I'm yep. not worried. I need yep. to get in and out of this light, dark, light, dark situation. Yeah. Okay. Now, we've talked about a lot of different types of fences and, you know, different situations. And I left this till the end because the question I do want to ask you, the starting box. What I mean, some horses are just brilliant at starting box. Oh, yeah, go in, start, yep, out we go. But there's others that become a problem. What can the rider do, even with the young horse that hasn't actually done it, but also with the problem horse? Or, you know, I don't like to say problem horse, but the horse who... Yeah gets upset and nervous and worried in the starting box. What can we do about them? I haven't had many of those, but I've had a couple of, a, a couple of those that I've had one horse that was intent on destructing the uh, starting box before I departed, which was um, not very uh, good for my PR. <laughs> and so these horses that lash out and try to, kick things down, because we don't always get to do a rolling start. A rolling start is where you're allowed to walk in or trot in and then pop off. Or, to be honest, if you want to make things safer in the industry, let's have a rolling start for everything. Yes. As long as you don't cross the line early, you're yep. allowed to go. Yep. And I don't know why we don't do a rolling start. We used to do it in racing all the time. We used to do it in her racing. So, you know, why can't have anything to do it? But I don't want to get political my point is that if you have a horse that is going to be, if I, I'll put it another way, I'm going to train a horse to be, have a problem in the start box. The best way to do that, pop them in the start box, nice and quietly on a long run. They start to can you down, 10, 9, 8, and then when it gets to three, you dig the spurs in and you make him go off the clappers. Well, you just scared the crap out of him, and the next time you put him in the star box, you'll wonder what's going on. Yep. So don't do that. Mm-hmm. Don't ride hard at the star box. Look at what they do in the Olympics or 
they do a badminton or they do a burly or they do a dandle, they roll at the starboard. They just roll at that blow out of the water because these horses have jumped out of the star box hundreds of times and they, they never spurred up. It's just saying, excuse me, left can lead, roll on, away mm-hmm. we go. It's mm-hmm. doing their warm-up. So jumping your horse fast out of the out of the star box, and that's the problem. We shouldn't be calling it a star box. It just should be called something else because people think that it's like jumping your horse out of the barrier. Don't do that because it'll make your horse really scared of the star box. Don't Mm -hmm. do it. Just roll them out and pretend it's a picnic. You can pick up a time. I might lose five, seven seconds. Well, if the worst thing on my card is I'm seven seconds down on my my time cross-country, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think, Johnny, you've given us, you know, a very good overview of quite a few fences, quite a few different situations. And as you said, you know, a few times through this chat, sometimes it depends on the individual horse, the individual situation, you know, looking at terrain and fences and lots and lots of variables there. We've got the option if people have got a problem with a, no, I don't like to say problem, have got a challenge with a particular fence or a particular horse and they would like to contact you, you know, and if you're in the area, well, of course, and um, I'm sure you'll let them know if you're in the area sometime soon. But even so, you know, they can um, either organise enough people to get you in the area or else just say, well, I'm I'm really keen on doing something with technology at the moment. If they go to horsechats.com slash Jonna McLean, they'll get all your details. Go to horsechats.com, search for Jonna, search for McLean. Might pop across one or two of Andrew's, but, you know, I'm sure we'll find you. Just keep searching for Jonna and you'll get those details. And I'm sure Jonna will be happy to talk to you about that. And we've, um, you know, just go down the bottom of the page, basically, and you'll get all those contact details. Jonna, just say them again anyway, just in case people missed them before. Yep. So they can contact me on my Train to Win um, Facebook page. And they can also contact me on my normal email, which is McLean. J O W N A N C L E A N at gmail.com. So, yeah, no problem. Pretty straightforward. Anybody can contact me and more than happy to do um, video assessments, whatever needs to be done. That's what I do. Okay. All right, John, wonderful to catch up with you again. And um, as always, looking forward to catching up with you again next time. And we'll talk to you very soon. Oh, thanks, Glenn. It Thank was you. a pretty interesting interview. We had a lot of variations in it. It was actually really good. Yes, yeah, just going over a couple of things, John. I know we've sort of finished, but I just wanted to go over, you know, if we can get some little yep. fences that look like FEI fences, so you, you might look at all the really huge courses out there and go, oh, wow, you know, that's my dream to jump fences like that, but yeah. I've only got a young horse. You can sort of make miniature FEI fences, can't you? You can. One of the courses that I train in over in New Zealand that I, I love enormously it's a miniature FEI course. It's a miniature, and I just love it. Mm. And I don't know, I think I had 30 or 40 horses there last time, and it's just marvellous, and the horses rolled in it. And I said, these are really important foundations that your horses are seeing here because now the only the only difference in the entire context is the height. And I don't have a problem when the only context variation is going to be height or width. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. But when the context change is height, width, plus background, plus, mm. you know, the visual impression, that could be a problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
And I know that you're really focused on, you know, the line. Make sure your line is correct. And if your line's correct, you know, ones like skinnies or the narrow fences, they're not such a problem. But we didn't talk about when horses got tired. You know, if horses get tired, is that um, their responses get a bit delayed or, you know, what happens there? How are we going to, you know, thinking out on the cross-country course, if your horse is tired, how are we going to ride it different? We've got to consider the horse. Any any sort of hints or suggestions yeah. to us there? It all comes down to two things. It comes down to rider's fitness. It comes down to the horse's fitness. So okay. if the rider hasn't been doing a lot of work and they have a, a daytime job in Melbourne and they're getting somebody out to ride their horse, mm-hmm. they are going to be slightly lethargic and probably their ability to be able to apply pressure, whether it be the leg, their hands or the weight or whatever it is, and then also remove it is going to be delayed. Plus the horse is going to be, if he's not fit, then exactly the same is going to happen. Everything's going to happen slower. So you've got to start to say, come on, round the corner we go. And everything happens slower. So you've got to plan ahead a lot more for a horse that's tired. But really, um, for, the, for the tired horse and for the tired rider, they shouldn't be in that position. Uh, this is where accidents happen, tired horses and tired riders. So we don't want to be there. What we want to do is say, I've done over and above all of this. And that, and that was probably the advantage of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going back uh, back on uh, the old days, in the old three-day format where we had two rides and tracks, those horses were more than up to the task of doing cross-country, no problem at all. We'd had a massive warm-up. We'd yeah. have a little bit of a letdown with our roads and tracks, and then we'd jump out cross-country, and then we'd have a perfect letdown on our roads and tracks again. Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. That's what's missing in eventing. And, and, and I was devastated when they removed the old format because I thought it was actually really good for the riders' psyche, and it was perfect for the horses. But now, you know, you can be a part-time rider and you can be a part-time horse and you can um, have a go. So I, I worry about that because it produces tired horses and tired riders. You should be able to jump off the ground, strip your horse down and do the whole trotter procedure and whatever the vet needs you to do and also do your warm down and be the whole thing and then jump on your next horse. And you, if you can't do that three times, you shouldn't be riding it. That's my mm. opinion. But, yeah. you know, you, you need to be strong enough and fit enough to be able to do the process over and above the horse. Yes, the horse. yes, yes. And I think that's part of the preparation. I can remember when I didn't know any better because, you know, you hear people talk and you're trying to do the right thing and, get everything done. My first three day I rode yep. the whole both roads and yep. tracks in two point seat. Just forward seat. I just went, exactly, right. That's that's what exactly. you gotta do. I thought that's what you had to do. So I was fit and that's ready what and you've that's what do. I had to do. Yep. 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 If you if you can't stand in your stirrups and hold the two point position for ten minutes, you're not going. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Anyway, we've talked about going up and down and everything else, but basically, I mean, it's the same, isn't it? When you, you don't interfere with your horse's mouth, the horse is taken off, you can't change anything, you've just got to follow the movement and let them just no. just go on and um, and get over, you know, do the best they can do. You just don't want to interfere them. Yep, yep, yep. The yep. yep. best thing you can do is exactly as you said, and I can't am- amplify it enough, is yep. when in doubt, just let go of the contact, just let it go. Because... Yep. Um, Pulling the contact nearly always gets you into trouble. Yes, 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 because the horses are quite capable. They want to get over the fence as well. They want to do it easy and they don't want to hit their legs and they just want to jump the fence. Yep, 
Yeah. That's right. And and see, the issue really is, from a from a, a, a neurological mechanical sense, is that when you pull the reins, then the horses, um, if it, it's a pretty well trained horse, we must know that that once have got to the point of their eventing, that that actually then says to the brain, "Excuse me, you need to retard the engine," and the engine is at the back, so it's a Volkswagen. So the the a horse's hindquarter starts to shorten its stride in preparation for braking or started braking. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden it's going to produce power. Well, you can't have both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that um, you're very big on not just doing the fences, you know, practice transitions, you know, work on your line, tempo. Exactly. We just want to get the horse to the base yep. of the fence. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. In, in self-carriage. Yes, yes, and you talked about, you know, it's more of a test. What would you say before? Show jumping fences are a rehearsal for cross-country because in cross-country you've got all the yeah. changing terrain and the footing and the light and the colour and the backgrounds and the atmosphere and, you know, really sort of pushing the boundaries. So um, I think you've covered so much, Jonna, today, and we've done a big session, but um, I'm sure I could keep talking to you for another hour and, and uh, you'd still keep coming back with lots of information. So I'm just looking forward to catching up with you again, throwing some more questions your way. No worries. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And, okay. um, yeah, it's been a very interesting um, uh, episode. Right. Good to talk to you, Jonna. I'll catch up with you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Claire. a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 